Good morning, my name is Alex and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright and I wanna welcome you, whether you're streaming our online service live or tuning in later in the day or in the week, we're glad you're able to join us. This morning, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. This past Sunday, we reflected on the idea of meeting together as the church. Uh, on a verse in Hebrews 10 in particular, which says, let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. And we talked about our calling to be inventive in love when we can't meet together as we used to be able to. And really we're called to be inventive in love at all times, but especially now it feels like there's an opportunity to do that in a new way. And we wondered if as Christians, we have been too focused on our buildings and on the programs that happen in our buildings and all the busyness associated with that, which sometimes we mistake for what the church's calling is. And we also asked ourselves if maybe the pandemic is an opportunity for us to reconsider what church should be much more broadly, to look at what the Bible says about the Christian life all over again, or perhaps for the very first time. Well, reading Ephesians is one of the best ways you could hope to do that. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the city of Ephesus in the Roman Empire, and it's been called Paul's masterpiece because he packs into it everything essential that you need to know about the Christian life into six relatively short chapters. It's all in here. And that's what we're calling this series, actually, All In, because Ephesians really does cover all the essentials of Christian faith, and also because the point of this letter is to call us to be all in Christ, together in him. Verse 10 of the first chapter of Ephesians says that God is bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth other Christ, under Christ. All in, everything in Christ, it's that big of a vision, that large and encompassing of a perception of who Jesus is and what he's doing with us. And Paul invites us to respond in that way too. He doesn't want us to make a little room for Jesus in our lives. He doesn't want us to add Christian faith on as kind of a topping or a side dish because God demands everything. He calls us to be all in too. And then in response, he gives us everything, every blessing. But I think often we're preoccupied with everyday concerns. A lot of the questions I'm hearing these days have to do with practicalities. Things like, how can we keep meeting together when we don't have access to our building? How can we do online services better? What is the plan to reopen our buildings? How are we going to do that? When do we think it's going to happen? What comes next? And those are good questions, and we discussed a lot of them last week. We touched on them in the sermon, and then especially in the talkback session afterwards, we got into them. But there's an even more important question, and that's why. Why are we doing this? Why do we bother with any of this? And the only way to answer that question is to talk about our identity. Who am I? Who are we as Christians? And that is Paul's focus in this letter. And it has to come before practicalities or we risk getting the practice of the Christian life all wrong. And we've 
also talked about this pandemic as a wake-up call for the church and, and for each one of us, and I think really for our culture more broadly as well. I, I think it has provoked a kind of identity crisis for us. Who are we without our church building? Who are when we when we can't be together with each other physically? Who are we when we lose things that might define us? We might think of it that way. All the little pleasures in our lives that add up to a general satisfaction, as well as the pillars of our lives, our job, our prosperity, our relationships, our family. Some of us have lost some of these things over the last two to three months. And so today we start on an adventure to find our identity in Christ and through him to put all these other things in their proper place. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by its light, I can see everything else. And Ephesians gives us that kind of a big vision of the Christian life. So we're going to pray before we start reading it. Let's do that now. Holy Spirit, would you bless us, inspire us, shape us, renew us through the reading of your word, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're only going to read the first three verses of this letter, and in fact, we're going to focus just on the first two. And it helps to know that the way Paul starts this letter is the way that letters were written in the ancient world. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, he's writing himself here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Ephesians gives, us, Ephesians gives us this incredible vision of the church, of how God pictures us as we gather this morning in our pajamas, perhaps, half asleep, maybe not expecting too much. Ephesians shows us what our life together in Christ could look like, what it really does look like. But most of the time, I don't think we see it. A number of years ago, the Washington Post ran a little experiment. On a Friday morning in January, just before 8 a.m., during the busiest time in morning rush hour, a pretty unremarkable young man dressed in jeans and wearing a baseball cap took a violin out of its case in a subway station in downtown Washington. Over the next 43 minutes, he performed six classical music pieces composed by Johann Sebastian Bach. As he did that, 1,097 people passed by. Seven of them stopped to listen momentarily. Twenty people gave him money. He had his violin case open. He was busking. He received $32 in total. When he was done, nobody applauded. That young man was Joshua Bell, one of the world's greatest living violinists. And he was playing a Stradivarius violin worth three and a half million dollars. And yet, no one stopped. In that ordinary setting, at an inconvenient time, the question was, would people stop and notice something so beautiful, so glorious, so extraordinary? And they didn't. Beauty was hidden in plain sight. 
That is what happens with the church. And that is what Paul is getting at here in the opening of his letter. So we're going to focus on the first two verses here in what we read as a way of getting an introduction to Ephesians. First of all, there's Paul and the backstory to this letter. Secondly, there's the way he describes the people he's writing to. He calls them holy, and that's an important word we're going to um, unpack a little bit. And then finally, there's this greeting he gives them, grace and peace, which is really a summary of Christian faith. So we start with Paul and his history in Ephesus. Paul was an apostle, which is a word that means messenger. One translation calls him God's secret agent. I like that. Now, apostle isn't a word we hear too much today, but it meant a lot in that context, and it still does to those of us who are Christians. The apostles were the 12 disciples, but Paul comes along later, and he claims to be an apostle too. And and the mark of an apostle was someone who had been close to Jesus, who had known him directly. And, And Paul had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, a direct encounter with Christ that led to his conversion. And as he calls himself an apostle, he's establishing his authority. But he's not boasting. He's not relying on the title itself. He makes it clear that it wasn't his own achievement. It wasn't by his own will, but only by the will of God. And Paul knows the people he's writing to. He first visited Ephesus briefly on his second missionary journey, which you can read about in in Acts chapter 18. And then he went back and lived there with the Christians in Ephesus for two more years later. It only makes sense that he would have done this because Ephesus was this huge wealthy city in a very strategic location in the richest part of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was an important port, a commercial hub, right between Asia and Europe, a gateway city. It was cosmopolitan, it was multi-ethnic. Ephesus had it all. It had 50 temples to a huge range of gods and religions, including the world's largest temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the protector of the city. Its people looked to her to guarantee their prosperity. And so Paul walked into all of that and introduced them to Jesus Christ. He called them away from their former life into something new. And it caused a riot. Literally, it did. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. I'm going to stop there with the background for today, but we'll return to this because In a lot of ways, Ephesus is like our cultural setting. It's like the city of Toronto or New York. It's like any number of big cities uh, in our world today. And so we're going to learn a lot about what it means to be under the pressure of what we face as Christians in the world we live in today and also the opportunities to engage with the culture around us. So the next thing that Paul does in the second half of the first verse is he addresses himself to the Christians in Ephesus. He calls them God's holy people, or as some translations put it, he calls them saints. And he uses this word saint eight times in his letter. I asked some people this week what they associate with that word saint, and they said a number of things. They said halos. They said Mother Teresa, a good person who leads a good life, someone who is close to God, someone who's no fun. That person was being really honest. Really spiritual people are saints, another person said. And so this word saint, and I think the same is true of the word holy, and those 
both mean a very similar thing. Holy people and saints are, are basically the same thing. Uh, this word doesn't really relate to our ordinary life, but I hope we can change that. I hope we can kind of take this special vocabulary we have in the New Testament and figure out what we've gotten wrong in our assumptions about it and kind of reclaim it. Because when Paul calls the Christians in Ephesus saints, he's not referring to some elite group. He's addressing everyone, all the believers, no matter what their track record was like. He's reminding them, and he's reminding us too, that we're ordinary people who have been made extraordinary in Christ. And holiness, sainthood, is not the result of good behavior. So they were saints or holy people solely because they had been chosen by God for a special purpose. They've been set apart. You can think of this in the way that a surgeon might have special instruments which they keep in a special place uh, for the occasion when they really need them. They're designed for a particular thing. This isn't Paul trying to give the Ephesians a pep talk, trying to raise their self-esteem. Instead, he's telling them who they really are, the truth of who they are as believers in Christ. They have a purpose that makes them beautiful. That's what holiness really is. You can think of this in terms of hockey if you want to. Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews are two of the most talented Toronto Maple Leafs, and they make scoring goals look so easy and effortless, sometimes it's hard to believe. They have this harmony between them on the power play, a symmetry that, that thrills me, I have to say. So Jesus takes all the awkwardness, all the discord and strife within ourselves and between us and other people, and he creates a harmony by covering all of our brokenness with his goodness. And then he makes it possible for us to come home to God the Father through him. That's what holiness is. And yes, part of it is, of course, living in God's will, obeying his will, following his way. But it's about identity first, not about our behavior. Because those saints in Ephesus and the saints of Courtright may not look like much. They don't have halos, that's for sure. The church in Ephesus started as a group of 12 people, a ragtag band of believers trying to figure it out. That is the local church. It's ordinary, and yet it is holy and wonderful in God's eyes. Nothing special on the surface, but chosen by God, his plan for the world hidden in plain sight. John Stott says in his commentary on Ephesians that this letter reveals one of the biggest blind spots in our faith, we who are so individualistic. And that is the central importance of the local church for who we are in Christ, if we're going to grow in our faith and understand the gospel. Next, Paul moves on in verse 2 to a greeting where he says, grace and peace be with you. It's a greeting that Paul uses elsewhere in his other writings in the New Testament, but it's more than a greeting. It's also a summary of what we believe as Christians and who we are. Grace comes first, and that's deliberate. There is an order to this. Grace 
is necessary before there can be peace. So we receive amazing grace from God through Christ who gave his life for us at the cross so that we could be at peace with him and with each other. And then the Holy Spirit leads us in the way of peace. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's be clear that we're not holy because we've got our act together. Peace comes when we stay together long enough to get real, to disagree, to fight, and then to forgive each other, to test the holiness, you can think of it that way, and to understand that God's holiness comes close and gets messy in the relationships we have in the church and beyond the church. And it's all the more beautiful for it. Let me tell you a story about grace and peace from my own life. In my former church in Toronto, I had an office and right across the hall from me was the Sunday school superintendent of the church. Her name was Betty. And Betty and I disagreed on a lot of things. We, we had some uh, differences about what the church should be. And uh, as I saw it, Betty was all about rules and tradition. And, and her favorite phrase was, that's how we've always done it. Whereas I wanted to bring change, I wanted to introduce new ideas, new music, new ways of being the church, of reaching out to young people. As far as I could tell, Betty and I had very little in common in terms of how we understood ministry in the church. We were from different generations, so I resolved to try to avoid her as much as possible. We'd had some conflict, and so I thought this, this makes sense, but it was hard to do because her office was across the hall from mine. One day I was out for breakfast with one of our small group leaders at a Greasy Spoon restaurant uh, up at Bloor and Spadina, and Betty came in. She walked past our table, and uh, I looked up and saw her eyes met, and I hoped she wouldn't stop, and she didn't. She proceeded to sit down at a different table, and so I continued with my friend eating breakfast and talking, and out of the corner of my eye, a little while later, I noticed her leaving the restaurant. But I paid a lot more attention when our server brought the bill. I was ready to pay, I had my wallet in my hand, and the waiter just smiled and said, it's covered. He said, that lady paid for your bills. Who, I asked, that woman who just left, are you sure? I was stunned, I put my wallet away, I was in shock. And I went back to the church and the need to repay her consumed me for the rest of that day and beyond. But it was only a few, later, a few days later when I finally ran into her and I sheepishly thanked her and she quietly and simply said, you're welcome. You know, I've never forgotten what Betty did for me that day. It was a holy moment. She was kind and generous to me when I didn't really deserve it, when I had judged her and ridden her off. She upset my prejudices. She challenged me to repent, to change my mind and my behavior. And sure enough, I did. We had a much better relationship from that moment on. Betty extended grace to me, and that grace paved the way for peace and reconciliation between us. Grace and peace. She was a saint to me. And through her, God showed me more about the communion of the saints which is the church. Through her, God drew me deeper into a love of Jesus and of his church. A church that goes across the generations, a church that includes people who disagree sometimes strongly with one another and yet stay together 
and learn to love each other. A church that welcomes everyone in. A church that is all in, in every way. But most of all, all in in Christ. And so here's my question for you today. Are you ready to encounter Jesus in a new way? Are you ready to find your identity as a saint in his holy church? Are you ready to fulfill the extraordinary calling he's given you in some quite ordinary ways? Are you ready to discover more about that on a journey that the Holy Spirit will lead you on in the company of God's people? I hope so, because that is where Ephesians is taking us. So I hope you will continue to read this book, to pray through it, to gather with other believers in your neighborhood group or your small group, and to let the word of God shape you, to let it enrich you. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and peace. We thank you that you are a holy God and that you have given us the gift of holiness through your son, Jesus, that you've forgiven us and that you bring us together, that we are your holy people, your saints. It's amazing. We can't believe it. But Lord, would you seal that truth on our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit and then send us out to live up to that calling. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.